The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. It's so important to answer some fundamental questions before we look at the gospel, before we look at the means of transformation. Um, We have to answer some fundamental questions. And so um, right off the bat, I'm going to invite you guys um, to to turn to your tables. Um, In your handouts for today, there's a section that says exercise number one. Um, And it asks you at your tables to read uh, a couple sections in in Genesis 3 and answer a couple questions. Um, The questions there are, how would you define sin? And what is or are sin's consequence or consequences? Um, And so I'm going to give you guys four or five minutes to to turn to your tables, um, have someone read those two sections in Genesis 3 that are outlined in um, in your handout, and then discuss amongst yourself, and then when we come back, I'm going to have you guys throw out some, some definitions and some consequences of sin based on what you see in, in Genesis 3. So take a minute and do that. Okay, let's bring it back together. If you would, wrap up that last clause. So let me ask you this. Um, at your table, if you guys are so bold... If you have a definition of sin that you'd like to uh, put forward, um, I'd love to hear it. So, nominate that person that you, you know who I'm talking about, would like to nominate, um, and raise your hand and, and throw out a definition of sin. What is sin? Right here, yeah. Okay. So the answer was anything that grieves God or trying to be our own God. I think those are really good. Really good. What, what else would you say? How else would you articulate what is sin? Just a hand. Right here. Kaylee. Believing there's something better than Awesome. Believing that there's something better. And I was going to add, if you could point to, a, point to the the um, evidence in the text that you're claiming this definition from. Um, but I think I understand that one. It's good. What else would you say? How else would you define sin? Nathaniel? Okay. Right. Right. A misguided worship, so directing her worship and valuing something other than God. That's good. Um, yeah, Art. So they usurped God. They exchanged themselves in the place of God. Um, so I, I think that is, these four are great definitions. Um, some of the elements that I would make sure that are in there are definitely a, a direction. So when we talk about sin, sin is not an activity or an action that is done in a void that, it, that falls on some list um, or some definition that says, here's a list of what you should do and you did this. Um, sin is directional. Sin has an object and a subject. Um, the object of sin is, is God. We, in the garden, 
looked at God, the creator of the universe, the one who, who made all things, who holds all things by the word of his power, and we said, I'm going to usurp you. I, I don't need you. Um, I, I, I can value other things besides you. Um, and so, yes, sin is directional. It is an offense against an a all-powerful, all-loving God. Um, not simply a, a bad thing I do that's against some list somewhere. Um, and, and so one of, the, one of the major elements of that piece, you guys all kind of talked about it, is this. We were, de- we were created as dependent beings. We were created as beings who um, were, 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 were ought to have lived in, in a dependent relationship with our Father. An all-powerful, all-loving God was, was pouring out his love, was pouring out his life, was pouring out his wisdom and character toward us, and we turned our back on that. We said, no, I can be independent. And, and so if, if those are kind of the definitions of, of sin, a, a rebellion against a sovereign God, what would be the consequence or consequences of sin? Um, how would you, what would be on your list of consequences of sin? Yeah. Yeah, driven away from the tree of life. Consequence, death. That's great. That's not great, but it's, yes, it's there. Um, that's really bad. How else would you articulate consequence or consequences of sin? Yeah, Art. Yeah, so there's a separation. So there's an, an avoidance of God or a consequential. The last piece I had you read was that God cast them away, cast them out of the garden, um, representing his presence, the place where he, he would dwell with his people. They're now cast out of the garden and, and banished from that. Um, those, are the, those are the two elements that I would say are the ultimate realities, ultimate consequence of our sin. Our, our sin is a directional rebellion against the good God, and the consequence of our sin is death by separation. Um, the, the consequence of sin is not simply death um, arbitrarily. The consequence is death because we've been separated from the fountain of living water. Jeremiah 2, um, 13 says that my people, this is God coming against uh, Israel at the time, he's saying my people have committed two sins. One, they've forsaken me, the fountain of living water. So they have removed themselves from the fountain of living water and they've dug out cisterns for themselves. They've hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that hold no water. And therefore, they're dying of, of thirst. The, the consequence of our sin is death by separation. This is a, 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 an extremely important truth to understand. When we talk about salvation, when we talk about redemption, when we talk about restoration, we have to know the, the, the great chasm, the great extent from where we are being saved. What is it that we are being brought out of? Where are we being redeemed from? We are not, apart from Christ, simply uh, dirty and in need of a cleaning up. We, we are not simply lost and in need of someone to say, hey, this is the right direction you should head. We are dead apart from Christ. Dead men and women do not need a dusting off. Dead men and women do not need a road map. They do not read. They are dead. And so the reality is, is we need life. Those two elements are so vastly important. We, we, we are dead and separated. And so if we are going to have a resolution to that, the resolution has to match that consequence, that conflict. 
Um, and, and God, like I said earlier, did not leave us in that consequence. God recognized this conflict that we are in, and he delivered for us a resolution. Um, I want to have you guys turn to Jeremiah 31. And I want to look quickly at um, a couple of passages that bring about some of the aspects of the resolution to that conflict. Um, I want to get to the, to the, to the question. Um, you know, Neil spent a lot of time last week talking about the, the, this transformation chart, that we have this sin behavior, and underneath this sin behavior are these desires and motivations, and underneath that are these heart idols that we've, we've placed other things more valuable than God. That's the state we're in, and that's what we have to, to come to God and repent of. And then we get to the point at the bottom of this cross, or this transformation triangle, um, where we look at the cross. I want us to look at what is the means by which we are transformed? What is the means by which we are sanctified or made more holy or changed? Um, but before we do that, we have to look at this ultimate conflict that we're in um, because it's the same throughout. Um, so look with me at Jeremiah 31. I want to read Jeremiah 31, uh, starting in verse 31. Um, and this is Jeremiah, or God speaking through Jeremiah to the hope that this, um, this group of Israelites have been, you know, the whole nation of Israel has been exiled. He's been scattered throughout the nations. They recognize and feel um, the reality of being banished out of the presence of God. They recognize this separation. Um, and God promises that, that there would be a resolution that would come. He says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant made with their fathers on the day when I took them by hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer should each one teach his neighbor or each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me. From the least of these to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive the iniquity, their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. And if you turn the page to chapter 32, starting in 36, he continues and says this, Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city which, says, which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger, in my wrath, and in my indi in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place. I will make them dwell in safety. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. For they... For they, excuse me, for they own good and the good, for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that will not, I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing good and I will plant them in the land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. 
In, in this passage and in the one I want you guys to look at at your tables, um, God is offering, He's promising uh, resolution to this conflict. Um, before we get to the actual means by which we are transformed, um, I want us to look at what, was the, what is the promise means? What is the promise resolution to this conflict that now we're being invited into? Um, so as you look at your handouts, um, there's an exercise number two that I want you guys to walk through, um, and then we'll come back for a short minute and take a break. Um, but in light of the definition of sin and the consequence of, of death by separation, what is the promise that God offers to us, both in Jeremiah and then in Ezekiel, what I want you guys to look at. Um, so turn to your tables and, and work through exercise number two really fast, um, and then we'll come back. Let's bring it back together. So out of these two uh, Old Testament passages, this, these prophecies proclaiming incredibly great news. Um, both of these found in a place when Israel, God's people, are scattered. They, they feel the angst of being separated from God, not being able to worship in the temple, not being able to, to be in a, the dwelling place of God, um, dying in, in the scattered of their, uh, in the scattering throughout the nations. Um, in these promises, in these texts, what um, what, what are some of the, the resolutions that you see from the text to this sin problem? Um, what, what's the great hope found in these passages? What was just awesome? Awesome, yeah. He said the, the resolution has nothing to do with what we do, but what God does. And where would you point to Defend your claim. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Great. What else? What are some of the specifics? Yeah. Yeah, so he's promising that he's going to remove that, that dead, corroded, stony heart and replace it with a heart of flesh. Um, that he's going to give new life to us. Yeah, Art. Good news. What else? Yeah. Both passages speak of a gathering in that yeah. really kind of gives hope to the driving out. Yeah. Yeah, kind of a resolution to that last bit in Genesis 3 that God drove them out of the place and now he's going to gather them from all the countries and bring them back. Um, yeah, so that he would dwell with them, that they would be his people and he would be their God. What else? Yeah. Jack.
Absolutely. That he's going to do this work. It's not just going to be a one-time ordeal, but he's going to actually do this cultivation, do this growth, do this, making it a safe dwelling place for his people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, Becca. beautiful insight that's not not quickly picked up that there's there's a there's a tender mercy in the reality that he's going to cause us to see the wickedness that we walk in um, but do that from a new heart and recognize man this is where I want to live and yet when I do this I recognize it now I can I can like understand what it is and that it's not this secure dwelling place that God has for us yeah what else is there anything else that you guys saw in that passage that brings great hope yeah, our we will have an internal motivation for obeying God yeah. coming in Right. Absolutely. That you know, he says that I'm gonna write it on their hearts and they're gonna know me from the inside out. That is that is an incredible hope that we have from this text. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that he's actually gonna dwell with us again in a more intimate way possibly than even before. That, that he's going to give us his very spirit that, that we might know him through that. Um, that's beautiful. Yeah, these, these passages um, are, are a gift for one. It's an incredible thing to be able to look at God working through um, his people in the Old Testament and pointing toward the reality of we were here. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were separated from the good God. And yet God is promising to do this work. Um, I, I love the fact that so many of you pointed out that the I statements, it's God that's going to do this. God is going to put a new heart in us. He's going to cultivate us in this land. He's going to make us to walk in his ways. He's going to cause us to know his statutes and walk in them. Um, and so if, if we step back, okay, if we look at the big picture, the big picture, you know, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Creation, God created us to, to live in, in communion with Him, in perfect union with Him, depended on Him for life, for breath, for, for joy, for patience, for peace, for all good things. And we said, no, I'm going to figure that out on my own. I'm going to go the other way. Um, and so the consequence of that was death by separation. We were separated from that good God, and the consequence was death. Um, and so we know, I mean, Andrew, he read this night one. Um, but the, the big picture answer, the, the answer to that separation, that death, is the gospel. Um, we know that. We've heard that. We, we must hear it over and over and over again. Um, it, it is 
mandatory for us to know this. Um, if there was a test in the class, we'd have to know the gospel. Um, but Paul articulates it in, in this way in Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You hear echoes of, I'm going to cause them to walk in my ways, to obey my commandments and statutes among whom we all once lived, the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like all the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not a doing of your own. It is a gift of God. Um, the, the, the gospel is the answer to that big question. The, 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 the resolution to the conflict of death by separation. Um, and yet... And yet, we come to passages like Romans 7, and we say, why? Why do I still struggle with this sin, and why can't I just get over it? You know, John and I were joking before, like, you want to change the things that you're doing? Just stop it. Just stop doing the things you're doing. Like, if that was it, we could have like a five-minute class, and not four two-hours classes. <laughs> Andrew get up here and say, hey, how you change? Stop it. Okay? Just stop it. And he'd say that like, over and over again, and then we'd walk out and we'd be changed. Um, but that's not the reality. That's not, that's not the, the, the picture we get in Scripture. Um, the picture we get in Scripture is glorious um, and life-giving. And this is where that Yogi Berra quote comes in. Um, we, we, we often make too many wrong mistakes. And, and I think when we, when we, when we think about the, 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 the process of transformation, the, the process of sanctification, we often make a tragic mistake, um, which we will talk about after the break. So, cliffhanger. Um, let's take 10 minutes, get a snack, get some coffee, water, bathrooms, women's this side. There's men's. There's also one up in the gallery if, if there's a long line. We'll come back in 10 minutes and talk about that question. All right. The moment you've all been waiting for is coming really, really soon. This is great. This class must be working. Um, you're all so well behaved, raising your hands and answering questions. Like the first week, it was chaos, so things are changing, which is good. Um, Alright, I promised I would uh, give you the answer the, to the question, to the yogi quote. Um, we often make wrong mistakes. So if you want to get your pen out uh, and get ready to write down uh, the mistake that we make when we think about transformation. This is the mistake. I wrote it down. We do not 
Dio NFT. Believe that salvation is by grace through faith. That is the mistake that we make. Um, let me clarify. I, I do believe that statement. I believe that it's true in my own life. Um, but when I'm talking about salvation, I mean the, the, the scope and breadth of salvation. Um, not simply justification, but sanctification and glorification as well. Um, so often we relegate the means uh, of salvation to this past tense event called conversion. Um, that at some point we heard the good news of the gospel, that, that Christ died for uh, a sinner like me, that he, he took me what, which was dead in my trespasses and sins and made me alive. And I believe that fact. And, and, in, and the result of that was my justification, my salvation, my um, removal out from the dominion of darkness, out from the, um, the wrath of God and into the dominion of light, into the presence of God. And I believe that. I believe. I looked at the cross and I said, the cross is where Jesus absorbed my sin, where he took on the wrath of God that I so desi- deserved. Um, it's in the cross that that I've been made new. And now that the cross is behind me, I can get on with the work of transformation. The, the, the dramatic and devastating error that we make is we look at the, the work of salvation, the work of justification, and we rightly say that we've been saved by grace through faith. We've been justified by grace through faith. And then we look at sanctification and we say, all right, now what should we do? How, how must I be changed? How must I, I change from one degree of glory to the next? How can I, can I be more holy? How can I look more like Christ? And we, we quickly fall into this amnesic state. And we, we deny the reality that it is by grace you have been saved through faith. That salvation is a work of God. Not of our own. This horrible mistake, I, I fear, is um, perpetuated in churches. I have, in my past, been so guilty of um, implicitly stating that we have been saved in such a way, and now we're being saved in some other way. We come to that fork in the road that Yogi talked about. We don't bend down and pick up the fork and move on the same direction we're on. Instead, we create this, this fork, and we say sanctification or justification are... are our conversion experience is by this means, and our sanctification um, is probably by some other means. And that's tragic. Um, if the result of our sin was separation, death by separation, um, then the good news must mean new life and new fellowship. And I think what we do is we look at our conversion experience, we look at salvation by grace through faith, and we say, I've received new life. But we forget the second reality that we, that we looked at in these passages in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, that, that God wants to dwell with his people. That he wants to establish a relationship with his people, and by which he's going to cause um, this resolution to occur. 
Um, and so we find ourselves believing that, yes, I've been given a new life, um, and therefore, this new life, I should be able to stop sinning. I should just be able to, to, to put on my Nikes and just do it, just do the right thing. Um, but we find ourselves again and again in Romans 7. I, I want to do this, and yet when I try, when I muster up the, the willpower, when I, when I say, this is what's right, I know it, I should do it, let's do it, I find myself running the other direction. I find myself caught up in these sins and these idolatrous behaviors and, and heart idols. Um, so what must we do? Paul gives a really important um, piece of information. In Romans 7, verse 18, the, the latter half of verse 18, Paul says this. He says, For I desire to do what is right. I desire that. I want that. And then he goes on to, to give us a really important fact. He says, but not the ability to carry it out. I, I have the desire to do what is right. I have the desire to walk in God's statutes and obey his rules and commune with him. But I don't have the ability to carry it out. And so if I, if I continue to believe that, yeah, I have new life and sanctification or justification is by faith, by grace through faith. And now that I have this new life, I should just be able to do this life, this Christian life that, I, that I'm called to, that I'm encouraged to, to live. Then I find myself running back to Genesis 3. I find myself being enticed by the serpent saying, hey, you can be like God. You have this new life. The, the enemy does not stop accusing and bringing lies against us once we've been saved, once we've been justified. Oh, he brings more and more and more firepower against us. And the lie that he brings more often than not is that subtle truth and extreme lie that he did in the garden. You can be like God. You can know good and evil. Oh, you have this new life that you've been given? Okay, you don't need God. Now you're good. You can go do it. Just do it. And then we find ourselves in Romans 7 just juggling this this torturous experience of, I thought I could do this, and then he accuses the brother, and then he says, you can't do anything. So what is it? What must we do? What must we do to believe? What are we believing when we look at this gospel? Not thinking about this conversion experience that I pray we've had, but now thinking about our day and day life, our everyday life, as we get up and put on our shoes and go to work and experience relationships with one another and raise families and interact with spouses and roommates and girlfriends and boyfriends, what must we do to now walk in the ways of the Lord? What is the means of sanctification? Um, I want you guys to turn to your tables again. Um, exercise three is going to ask the question, what is the means of justification, which I think we've talked about. Um, the second question is, what is the means of... Or excuse me, did I say that right? We've talked about what the means of justification is. What is the means of sanctification? What is the means by which we go about our days and change into the likeness of God? Um, so again, look uh, at this passage in Colossians 2 and pick out some of the ways that Paul encourages and exhorts the believers in Colossae to be changed. How does he say, how would he say what the means of sanctification, of change, of transformation is? Um, so take a few minutes at your table and, and work through exercise number three.
So question. What what is Paul in this passage calling us to? What what is he identifying as the means by which we're not simply justified but also sanctified? The means by which we're changed, transformed. How would you uh, what in this passage do you point to? means our justification is Christ's finished work on a cross. Absolutely, Tim. What else? Yeah. 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 As a means of Yeah, absolutely. Sign of their hand. Over here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 So would that be means of justification or sanctification? Yeah. I would. Yeah, good. That's great. What else in this text would you point to? Yeah. Thankfulness? Flesh that out. Yeah, and again, directional. So we're, we're thankful to a God who's justified us. And we ought to also be thankful to a God who will complete that work. Right? What else? Yeah. Green. Yeah, so our act is actually to continue in this faith. Yeah. Yeah, John uh, 6, 29, the, the disciples come to Jesus and say, what are the works of God? What must we do to do the works of God? And Jesus turns and says, the work of God is to believe in the one he has sent. Um, they're, they're in relationship with him, and they're asking, what must we do you know, to fulfill this? And he says, the the work of God, the continued work of God is to believe in the one he has sent, to have faith in the one he has sent, to receive by grace the gifts that he has given us. Um, The the, the reality is this. We functionally um, slip back into this um, disordered loves, this disordered values. We... You know, if we were asked, how have you been saved? We would say, by grace, through faith. Um, not a work of our own. It is a gift of God. Um, we look to the cross and say, this is our salvation. Um, but functionally, I fear that we often um, deny that fact with the way that we think about transformation, with the way that we think about 
change and sanctification, um, growing in holiness. Um, if, if we continue thinking through this conflict resolution, this idea that we have been separated from a good God, um, we, we deserved death, um, and God has called us back into newness of life in this gospel. I think there are three things that we have to believe, at least three things. There's plenty of things we need to believe. But if we're thinking about salvation as, as faith, um, you know, salvation by grace through faith, the question is, what are we believing? Um, the question, when we think about transformation, um, it's, it's by the same means by which we are justified, we are sanctified. Um, by faith and repentance. By recognizing that um, I've wounded, I've directed a rebellion against a good God. Um, and so if sanctification is, the same, is by the same means, the, the, the first verse in this passage I had you read was, Therefore, as you received Jesus, Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. There's a, there's a logical coherence to that. As you received Him by grace, through faith, as you put your faith in the, in the finished work on the cross, in the same way, so walk in Him. So go about your every day putting faith in the finished work of Christ. Putting faith in the reality that He has done it for you. Um, there, there are three realities that I think we have to come to grips with. We have to believe. When we think about faith, we, th- we need to think of it as, as belief or trust or relying on something. And so if our everyday life, our sanctification, our change, our transformation is by faith, what are we believing there's three things that I think are vastly important that we have to believe. Um, the three are this. We, we need to believe that we'll be given a new heart. We need to believe that those passages in Jeremiah and Ezekiel are true. The secondly, we need to believe that we've been given a new identity. Um, and thirdly, we need to believe that we've been given new power and new potential. The first is that we need to believe that we've been given a new heart. And we, we've looked at that. We've, been, we've, look, we've identified in, in Ezekiel that God has taken the heart of stone, the, the heart that was dead, and removed it and replaced it with a heart of flesh. He's given us new life. We've, we were dead in our trespasses and sin, and God brought us alive in Christ Jesus. I think we've talked about that um, a lot. We, we should continue to talk about it. But... Are we developing communities and, and a lifestyle and a family and a, and a way of living that we believe that this is true? Or do we, do we jump back and forth between, I believe today that I have a new, new heart, but oh man, my actions were like this, so I don't think I have a new heart. I don't believe that God is actually good on his promise, that he's actually given us new life. And the, the second one is, is new identity. And I think this is something that we have to think more about. Um, you know, the, the, the gospel and, and the, the gospel writers give new identity, you know, tags on, on who we are in Christ in multiple ways. In the, the book of John, John says that Jesus calls his disciples, you are now my friends, no longer my servants, for you know what I'm doing. Servants would not know that. Um, in other places, God calls us, we're no longer slaves to sin, but we're slaves to God and righteousness. We're, we're now his bondservants. We've now been purchased, redeemed out of a slave trade to sin, and now we're in his um, household. But the one that I think we, we struggle with the most um, is one that, that is vastly important. I, 
personally struggle with it the most. Um, Joel introduced a song to us in the last couple of weeks um, where he says, we are no longer slaves of fear, but we are children of God. The identity that, that, that we must believe is true, and I think functionally we don't, is that you are a son and daughter of the King. That we have been adopted into a, a family, into a household whose head is Christ and whose father is a very good God. Um, this reality has struck me more than it ever has in, in the last 18 months. Uh, my wife and I have uh, Isaiah, who's just about to turn 18 months next week. Um, and this reality that, that we are sons of God is, is, is becoming more weighty as I look at how I interact with my own son. Um, and I wonder, if we, if we truly believed, if we put faith, if we trusted what God says is true, how would that change our daily life? 1 John 3, um, verses 1 through 3, says this. John says this to the, to the church. He says, See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when it appears, we shall be like Him, because when we see Him as He is, and everyone who thus hopes in him, purifies himself as he is pure. I, I wonder if we believe that. I wonder if we believe when he says, Beloved, we are children of God now. I wonder what that would do to our everyday life. You know, when, when Isaiah does something that I've asked him not to, or Lindsay has asked him not to, um, at 18 months, he knows right and wrong. Um, if I asked him, for instance, not to throw the controller at the wall, um, and I say, Isaiah, do not throw that controller at the wall. Um, and, you know, Isaiah walks over and holds the controller and kind of waits for a minute, assuming that I'm not watching, and then he chucks the thing at the wall and the batteries fly out, and then every time he looks back, and he looks back to see if I've seen him, which I do. I see him do this. I hear him do this. And one of two things happens every single time. The first is either this. He looks back at me, gives me that little like, ah, and then he just starts booking down the hallway and usually trips on the rug and I catch up to him pretty quickly. But he usually just takes off. He flees. He runs. But, but the second thing is this, and this has happened more often lately. Isaiah looks back at me recognizing I just did something that my dad asked me not to do. And his eyes well up and he starts to bawl. And then instinctively he runs over and he tries to grab onto my neck and hug me as if to say, like, I didn't mean it. Like, don't punish me. One of two things happen. We either run, not believing that this is a good God, or our eyes well up, as Becca, you recognized in, 
Jeremiah or uh, Ezekiel, that we will recognize our wrongdoing and we will turn to a good God. The reality is that if, if we believed that, that we were sons and daughters of God, that he was our father and that he loved us, and we looked at the cross and saw the greatest act of love to a father who wants to adopt his children and call them into himself, how would that change our behavior? How would it change our, our speed at which we would turn and repent of sin? How would it change our, our desire to, to come freely out of joy and, and plead from this God to, chan, to transform us, to change us, if we believe that we were sons and daughters of a good father? If our daily life, if our transformation is by faith, is by believing, what are we believing? In our communities, if you're in a gospel community or you're leading communities, are, are, we, are we reminding people often that they are a son and a daughter of a king who loves them? Who, who is not quick to, to wrath, but quick to forgive? Who... who who wants to, to convict and bring up these, these sin behaviors and idols in our lives for our good, that he might, you know, eradicate them, that he might do surgery on us and carve away. If we believe that we are sons and daughters, would we not turn to him and, and receive forgiveness for our sins day in and day out? We must believe this and we must call our friends and our family to believe that we have a new heart and that we have a new identity. We are daughters and sons of a good father. The third thing is, is equally important. What is a new means? What is the new power or potential um, when we think about transformation or sanctification to becoming more like Christ? What is the power that that we are given in the gospel. Um, and so for the last exercise, I want you guys to turn again um, to your tables. I want you to look at um, the upper room and, and Jesus talking to his beloved disciples before he goes to the cross. I want you to read those passages and, and ask the question um, that's there. What is the power? What is the new potential by which we are transformed? All right, with that lull, <clears throat> um, we only have a few minutes left, so I want to have three, um, three quick answers from you guys, and then I want to wrap it up. In this passage, what, what element, what, um, what is God, what is Christ promising us? Um, the means of transformation. Um, what, are the, what, are the, what are the promises in these texts um, regarding the, the power or potential or um, ability that we might have to change? Yeah, Becca. The prophet, the mind is the one who Yeah, so... Yeah. 
So the Father does the work. Yeah, Art. Absolutely. Yeah, he says, they, they will, we'll, we'll come and make our home with you by way of the Spirit. The indwelling Spirit, absolutely. John? Um, the, one of the great promises in these passages is the phrase, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. Um, death by separation is, is horrible. Um, and, and life is wonderful, but life in communion with a good father is incredible. Um, and so often I think we we grab hold of the idea of new life, of, of, you know, I've got this new spirit in me, I can, I can do these things. And we so often um, lose sight of the reality, the, the, the culminating fact that God will be our God, we will be his people, and he will dwell with us forever. Um, we, we, we look at that in Genesis, say, that sounds great. We look at that in Revelation 21 and 22 and say, man, that will be great. And yet time and time again, Jesus, God through his word, through his apostles, promised that he will be with us, that he will do this work in us. And he calls us to believe the reality that Christ has promised himself to us. I'm going to read really quickly three passages that Paul says, uh, Paul references the fact that the means by which he goes about transformation is this indwelling of Christ. Really quickly, Colossians 1, 27-29, it says this, To them, to the saints, to us, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, how God would bring about restoration. He says, Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And listen to this. He says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul says, My ministry, what I do, I do not out of my own pull up my bootstraps and do it, but I toil with his energy which he powerfully works within me. In Galatians 2.20, famous passage, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In this passage, Paul's talking to the the Colossians, not, not about an entryway into the people of God, but he's saying the life of the people of God is lived out of a reality that Christ dwells in you. And the life we live in the flesh, we now live by faith. We believe the fact that Christ dwells in us to do his work. The last passage is the answer to Romans 7, um, found in Romans 8. 
I want to read the, the, the first section of Romans 8, and then we'll wrap up. Paul says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's laws. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They do not have the ability to please God. And this is what he says in verse 9 through 11. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if, if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. Our justification was purchased by God in Christ. And we receive that by grace through faith. And our sanctification is purchased for us by God in Christ. Him working out our salvation. Him working in us. Convicting us of our sin. Calling us to repentance. Reminding us of our identity. Christ in you, the hope of glory, Paul says. We must be a people who identifies the reality that we have a new heart, that we've been made alive where we were dead, that we have a new identity, that we are sons and daughters of a good God who calls us to himself. But we also have to remember the fact that he has not left us alone to wander about trying to change on our own until finally Christ comes again. No, he has sent the spirit of Christ himself to dwell in us that we might be changed. We must believe that. Let me pray. Father, we again are so thankful that you have not left us as orphans. But you have given us your spirit. That You have caused us to be in your presence, to, to commune with you, that you are our God and we are your people and you dwell with us even now. God, help us to, to, to recognize, to reckon that fact daily that we are your children and we are not alone. And God, I pray that, that we would put faith, we would trust that reality and we would turn to you. We would plead from you. And by that we would be changed into the likeness of your son. God, not by our power, but by yours. We thank you for tonight. We thank you for the gift um, that is your gospel. We pray that you would wield it in our lives. 
pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.